Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 22nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, leaders are comparing notes on how to expand broadband Internet access to rural Mississippians. And after a Mississippi StoryCorps, learn how an online resource from Sesame Street is helping students, teachers, and parents learn about addiction. Plus, we'll talk with Muppets Carly and Abby Cadabby. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians are one step closer to receiving high-speed Internet. Businesses and regional agencies are taking part in a Mississippi Rural Broadband Summit sponsored by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. John Rousenville is with USDA. He says they're educating businesses and nonprofits about federal grants and loans to provide broadband to rural areas. Rousenville spoke with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Uh, you know, throughout the state, you hear over and over uh, about the lack of connectivity and lack of available broadband internet uh, across the state. So what we're trying to do with this series of workshops is to create more awareness for both the technologies that are out there to deploy uh, high-speed internet to rural areas, but also make people also aware of the federal funding sources that are available uh, through agencies like USDA, through the Appalachian Regional Commission, through the Delta Regional Authority and others, to to show folks that there are technologies out there to get reliable high-speed Internet to your home or business, even though you're in a rural area. And here are also some funding resources that can help facilitate the, the deployment of the, of the technology. How much does it cost to provide broadband in a rural area? It's really, and, that, and that's, that's the big issue. That's, that's why, uh, you know, your bigger companies are not necessarily focused on, on rural areas. They're, they're focused mainly on, you know, quote-unquote, the big fish, where they've got uh, pockets of very large rooftops that, that, that uh, where they can, you know, th- get, get a lot of concentration of subscribers in one area. Well, in rural areas, uh, you know, there's, there's not that concentration of, of, uh, of rev- residents to, to subscribe to the service. So it's really all over the board, and that's why the different technologies make a difference. For rural communities where, you know, you may have a, a house or two every mile, Maybe it doesn't make sense to deploy fiber because fiber is expensive to put in the ground. Copper is expensive to put in the ground. Um, but wireless is, is much less expensive than your, than your fiber, and it can have the same capacity and speeds as some of your uh, wireless systems. So basically this is fact-finding. 
not necessarily fact-finding, but more awareness. For example, um, just, just creating a, an environment uh, or, or a, an educational environment here with the workshop to, to let people know that all these technologies are available. So in a lot of ways, yes, it is kind of like fact-finding, but we're trying to create awareness for you know, you've got all these players providing Internet service. There are ways to where they can complement each other's services and complement each other's technologies. So no matter how rural community, community may be, there may be a cost-effective way to deploy high-speed Internet to those rural communities and also provide uh, information on the, the federal funding sources that are available to do it. So implementing this, what, do, what are we talking about in time, in terms of time and, and getting these folks on the same page? Time is the big issue. You know, when the, when the, when the legislature passed the uh, Broadband uh, Enabling Act uh, back in the, in the last legislative session. That was for electric cooperatives? Yes, ma'am, for the electric cooperatives. You know, there was a mindset out there that, you know, well, next week everybody's going to have high-speed Internet. And it's just not the way it works. It's, it's a very capital-intensive process. Um, some of the co-ops are beginning to get in the game already. Uh, some are still studying. They're just, do the numbers make sense? Uh, can we afford this? You know, everybody wants to have high-speed Internet, but we have to keep in mind just the, uh, the reality that it's, it's expensive technology. But we've got to have it some way. We've got to come, come up a way to, uh, to break that code uh, to give people in rural communities the same opportunities as folks in urban areas because if we don't address the internet problem uh, I think we'll continue to see a decline in the quality of life healthcare, education, job opportunities in rural communities. How much in terms of loans and grants are available at this point? Well we have a new program that was launched this year at USDA Rural Development called the Reconnect Program and there was $600 million uh, made available to that program nationally and it was deployed in uh, there three types of buckets, so to speak. One was a grant program, one was a grant loan combination, and one was uh, loan only, low interest loans, about 2%. So it's, it's, uh, it's cheap money, uh, even if it's not a grant, uh, if you go the low interest loan route. So th- those uh, applications, Mississippi had four of our electric cooperatives that submitted applications for the Reconnect program. And I think between now and the first part of November, we should know if any of those were successful. We also have a program called Community Connect, which is uh, it's up to $3 million in grant money. Uh, it's, it's available uh, for both for-profit entities and uh, nonprofits uh, or local governments to deploy uh, Internet infrastructure uh, in the community. Unfortunately, because of a lack of awareness, uh, I think we, Mississippi has had one application submission for the Community Connect program in like the last eight years. So that's a problem. I mean, How much money is that? It's up to $3 million per application. The, the total amount nationally that's available, I'm, I'm unaware. Uh, but then finally we have a program called Distance Learning and Telemedicine, uh, and it provides uh, 85% grant up to a $500,000 grant uh, for the deployment of distance learning programs and telehealth programs. So you'd see, you know, you could have school districts, uh, rural medical clinics uh, applying for those dollars. Uh, we, we do have a number of awards that I think will be announced this week on the distance learning and telemedicine program. But Mississippi checks all the boxes. You know, we, we have broadband issues out in rural communities. We have health care issues in rural communities. We have uh, education issues in rural communities. This is a funding program to help uh, buy the equipment to set up distance learning and telemedicine programs, and we ought to be uh, taking advantage of that. So we're, we're doing a lot in rural development to help market that program. Uh, and we're seeing more and more applications each year and, and more and more 
awards for the distance learning and telemedicine program uh, each year. So that's that's a good thing. USDA's John Roundsville with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up, learn how an online resource from Sesame Street is helping students, teachers, and parents learn about addiction. That's after a Mississippi StoryCorps. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Teresa Hickman always knew she wanted to be a scientist, specifically a chemist. Even when she was growing up in Louisville, picking cotton to help her family earn a living, her mind was on the future. Teresa Hickman shares her story with her son, Frederick, in this stop on the StoryCorps mobile tour in Mississippi. I grew up in Louisville, Mississippi. I had mom and dad both there. My father was a very strong individual. He had a third grade education, but he was the smartest psychiatrist I've ever met. (laughs) Yes, and I've met some good ones. My mother was a devout Christian, and she was calm and quiet. And um, their technique for raising us was so... It was almost uh, merged together. It was almost as if they read each other's mind. Uh, the one thing they always did was agree on whatever the story was when they were in front of us. Now, what they did otherwise, I have no idea. <laughs> but they were always totally together, and that's what made raising us uh, so solid because we knew that they both agreed. Daddy was so strong, and I didn't worry about being afraid. Now, yes, we had crosses burned in our yards, and we had our mailboxes blown up, but I still weren't afraid because he was there. And that led into my adulthood, so I didn't have a lot of fear or anxieties to deal with. Can you tell me about your brothers and sisters? There are seven children, three boys and four girls. I am the next to the baby what we call knee baby. (laughs) I have one brother below me. And so I kind of grew up with the guys, but my sisters were 16 and 11 years older than me. So I mostly responded to what the boys taught me. They were very, well, now, let me take that back. They weren't very cooperative. (laughs) Daddy made sure that they were cooperative. And they liked to say that Daddy was so crazy about me because he hadn't had a girl in six years. But I got to tell them Daddy knew they were heathens. He was trying to keep me alive. But he was very strict about how they treated me. So it made my life easy. Can you tell us about um, the work that your father did? First, we were farmers. We had an 80-acre farm, and we lost it to soil erosion. And we worked very, very hard and picked cotton and did whatever we needed to do to try and keep it. But because of soil erosion, if you don't make the cotton, you can't pay the note. After that, he started to work for George Pacific. He worked for George Pacific probably six or seven years before he got... George Pacific, that's a... It's a paper company. Probably six or seven years before he got stomach cancer, terminal, which was what he died from. So your father's passed and your rock, if you will, has passed. Then what happens? Well, I was fine because Daddy always prayed that we would be fully grown before he passed away. Mm -hmm. The baby was 19 when he died, so I was well on my way. I was actually in college. My mother, you know, was present, but Mother was very, very spoiled, which I thought was wonderful by Daddy. So when he passed, we continued to spoil her. Coming from the cotton field, when was the last time you picked cotton? We had a rule in the household that you pick cotton up until your 11th grade year because they really wanted you to graduate. So I would say the last time I picked, I was 16 because I graduated from high school at 17. So 16 years old, you're picking cotton. The years later, you were responsible for helping the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics or Mississippi Law Enforcement. Crime Laboratory. Putting criminals away. Can you talk about that journey? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I knew at 14 I wanted to be a, a chemist. I just didn't know what kind. 
I wanted to be a scientist of some kind, and plus all of my scores on ACTs and everything was the highest in science and math. So when I finished the bachelor's, I did that in Chicago, Illinois. And at that time, they had a freeze high on it. It was like an introduction to forensics because they told me I could go on the street as a cop and become a forensic scientist in 18 months. And I told them if they could find a partner I could stand behind for 18 months, I'd take the job. (laughs) But then we moved back to Mississippi. And there just wasn't any job, so I ended up back in college because of the money. When I graduated, the head of the lab graduated from Jackson State also, and he wanted someone from Jackson State to work with him. So I got the job, and it required me to do chemical analysis, which was, I'm a chemist in my heart, and uh, the testifying in court was not a problem. We were well-trained, and it doesn't matter what you do in life. If you're open-minded and trained, you'll be fine. You're on a farm Growing up, there is no CSI, there is no television, or if there is a television, there's very little television about police work. How do you get the idea of becoming a chemist on a farm? I read a lot. Always did. That was my escape. I mean, and so the one thing that the United States respected was chemists. Whenever the people went into outer space, away from <laughs> all the destruction, there was always a chemist on board. So I decided that if the earth were ever destroyed, if I were a really good chemist, I might be on board. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As more American adults experience addiction issues, the number of drug-related deaths continue to rise as well. And while the person is fighting a battle against drugs, alcohol, or some other addiction, children in the household may not know how to process what's going on. An online service from the makers of Sesame Street is working to provide kids, teachers, and parents with tools to help have tough conversations about parental addiction. Jeanette Betancourt is a vice president with Sesame Workshop. She joins us to talk about an online resource called Sesame Street in Communities. So in this nation, we know that approximately 6 million children are under the age of 11 are being impacted by parental addiction. How does your team decide what content will help deal with these delicate issues in an age-appropriate way? Our model at Sesame Workshop is to rely on quite a bit of research, and that research is looking at perspectives from key advisors, individuals whose professions are to delve in these topics, but also we do on-the-ground research. So we hear directly from families and children impacted by parental addiction or these tough topics, whether it's homelessness or foster care. We want to get their point of view and also the perspective of young children. The new character is Carly. She's a little girl who lives in foster care because her mom is dealing with addiction issues. I watched a a brief YouTube video that featured Carly. Her mom's issues were referred to as grown-up issues. But it was clear that Carly was happy that she loved her mother and she was happy because they had written a song together. I just thought it was interesting and heartwarming that it was not a depressing situation for this little character, for this little six-year-old. 
that there was a lot of hope that came from it. I think you just said it right, Karen. It's, it's we hope, <laughs> uh, and excuse the paradox, we hope that we are giving hopeful and optimism in these situations because often for young children, uh, there isn't that sense of hope. So we hope that these resources provide a couple of directions. One, that we explain parental addiction in a very child-appropriate way, that it is a grown-up problem and that they need grown-up help, but also that we listen to young children in the scope that they are feeling listened to and then felt that they are not alone. And there's also hope for the future and that they can express their feelings quickly and efficiently. Carly talks to children, but how do parents and providers take that message to reinforce among children what's important and and why there is hope with a parent with addiction? Well, that's what's wonderful about all the resources on Sesame Street and communities.org because they are intended for grown-ups and children alike. So there are videos that show Carly's perspective about her emotions. There's also professional development in which guides the grown-ups, whether it's providers or parents, uh, to use these resources uh, in a way with their children. Um, We try to be very, very efficient in giving similar messages in different ways. So there's videos, there's a storybook, there's interactive, there's parent tips, and there's activity sheets. We're focusing on this specific topic, but talk in generalities about the importance of early childhood education and what Sesame Street brings to that uh, venue of learning for children. Our mission at Sesame Workshop is to help all children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. And what that means is that we're really nourishing the whole child. So particularly, we also know that investing in child's well-being in those early years, birth to five, is critical. So our focus is how do we nourish young children's development uh, early on, and particularly when facing tough topics and building their resiliency. Uh, Is there an age range that this programming would be most appropriate for? We find that our focus is generally on younger children, but we find that in these tough issues, we go all the way up to age eight. Dr. Jeanette Bedencourt is the Senior Vice President of U.S. Social Impact Sesame Workshop. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Bedencourt. Thank you. We've been talking about the story of a new Muppet named Carly, who is in foster care as her mother receives treatment for addiction. We're joined now by Carly and her friend, Abby Kadabi. Carly talks about how she felt when her mother went away. At first, it made me feel sad because I love my mom so much and I really, really missed her. But you know what else? It made me feel really good to know that she was getting grown-up help. And it made me feel really, really proud of her that she was getting grown-up help. And and now that she's feeling better, that makes me feel really happy. What do you and your mom do that makes you happy? Oh, we do so many things. Uh, we... We like to draw together. Uh, we go to the park, and she pushes me on the swings, and I love that. And and we really like eating pizza together. <laughs> Abby, what do you think of your new friend, Carly? Oh, I just love her so much. We have a good time. In fact, 
her mommy in. Um, she invited me over for pizza, which yeah. is really nice. <laughs> and um, I, I just love that we can tell each other anything and know that we're there for each other because we can have big feelings as kids, you know, like, and we don't, we can, it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be confused or any of those things, but sometimes it's just nice to have someone next to you to go through it. So Carly and I, sometimes we just like hanging out together. Yeah. You know. Sometimes Abby and I, we do talk about big feelings sometimes, but Mostly, we just like to be together because we're friends, and so we draw. And you yeah. can talk to each other about things that are big feelings. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, friendship is really important. Kindness is a superpower. Yeah, and it when and, and it gives you, you get to listen, and you hear other people's stories, and then your story gets to be part of their story, mm-hmm. and I think it's just really magical we look out for each other. Alan taught me something when I was feeling sad. Oh. He taught me he he taught me how to give myself a hug. I know that oh. sounds fun kind of weird, I guess, but it made me feel better. No, it makes me feel good too. In fact, I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. Oh, that's give nice. Give a hug. I'm doing my best. Oh, yeah. Well, Carly, it feels good. Carly and Abby, thank you so much for being with us and telling us about your feelings. Thank you. You're this welcome. Was fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.